what? We got got some birds and we had some fun and uh, and, and and no reporters were shot, so it was a good day. Shocking new video evidence reveals Senator Ted Cruz, who pretends to be a gun expert and a spectacular hunter, can't even bag a single damn reporter. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I'm not sure I have anything to say. I'm back after the weekend, and the, the only thoughts that have run through my head all weekend, the only words that have run through my head all weekend long were X's and O-O-O's, they haunt me like O-O-O's. That song is the worst earworm since that, what, Call Me Maybe. I mean, I cannot get it out of my head. So I think we're just going to spend the entire show with me singing that song and maybe the entire oeuvre of El King while the the male members of our crew dance around with their their shirts off and jump everywhere. Uh, I wonder how many people just hurt themselves turning off this uh, <laughs> this podcast. You know, we must turn like running like the you know in slow motion like the six million dollar man. Like we must turn it off before the shirts they take the. Anyway, did we all see? We all saw Bond. Did you see Bond back there? Yeah. yeah. What do we think? C minus B something. Yeah, B. 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 Yeah. B. Okay. B. And you know, I thought it was all right. A good a couple of good action scenes. Great opening action scene. Really good one in the middle. Don't want to give anything away. Craig looks like he's just about had it. You know, he looks like he's waiting, he's waiting for the donut truck to show up. You know, I will kill you and then I will have a donut. Thank you very much. <laughs> my, my real problem, though, with this, with this Bond and with a lot of these big action movies that are not costume movies, like the Mission Impossible one that came out over the summer, which I thought was a much better film than this, but I had the same problem with it, is I don't know what the bad guys are doing or why it's so bad, or why they're doing it. I have no clue. I can't. The, the Mission Impossible. I couldn't even figure out what the plot was. And in this, I didn't understand why the ticking clocks mattered, or who cared what you know, who they were doing it, why they were doing it. It's like I, I knew they were bad because they were sitting at a long table with their faces in shadow. You know, we are, we are a shadowy organization because our faces are in shadow. You know, and we, and we talk very calmly about evil things, and then we kill someone suddenly for no reason. We have no motivation, any idea what we. Do it. <laughs> it's like, I mean, Bond started out, obviously, he was fighting communism. You know, there was this philosophy that made people slaves and these people who were trying to spread it over the entire world. Gee, is there anyone like that today? Let's, let's see. <laughs> it's like, is it the evil Republicans? No. <laughs> is it the evil, uh, you know, corporations? No. Yeah. I don't think they have to attack all Muslims, right? They could, he could have he could have his nice Muslim sidekick, you know, Ahmed. You know, so like, yes, James, I will help you kill all the other Muslims. Thank you, Ahmed. You know, I, I appreciate. It. Now, now sit at your computer and tap intensely until you're assassinated in the second act, and then, you know, and then. But the bad guy should be. You know, one of those Bond with those Bond names like, you know, Mohammed Nasty Face. You know, I say, I am Mohammed Nasty Face, Mr. Bond, and I'm going to kill all your men and stuff the women into black bags with little isolates so they can just barely see out because God wants me to do that because God is a crazy man. That's why. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, I mean, I can recognize, I would know his motivation. You know, I'm sorry, Mohammed Nasty Face, I can't let you do that. 
so I will chase you to a glamorous European location and kill you. I mean, I mean, how, it's so much easier to tell a story when you tell the truth. I'm, I'm, writing, I'm writing this live on air. I give it away. I give this to Hollywood. I give the plot to you. I wave my WGA right. I'll, leave, I'll write the song for you. Da -da 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 -da. Sharia. I just met a law named Sharia. Da -da 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 -da. It's so easy. The thing is, the thing is, in all seriousness, in all seriousness, in some seriousness, in some modicum of seriousness, when, when you don't know what your values are, you don't know who the villains are, and you don't know what a hero does. You know, these heroes are essentially an assemblage of movie star character traits, you know, movie star gestures that he makes, the hand in the pocket and the kind of slouch and the gun with the crouch and all, all these things we recognize from the Sean Connery days. But we knew what Sean Con we knew why Connery was a hero. We knew why he had a license to kill and who he had a license to kill. These guys, I seriously, I did not know what they were doing. And they try to make it personal and small and intimate, but it's just, it makes no sense. And they, the whole third act of the movie really makes no sense because of this. So speaking of liars, let's talk about the media. <laughs> let's talk about lies. Let's talk about, I want to talk about lies. That's what I'm going to talk about today. So the Bond, the Bond film is actually a, a kind of lie that I want to talk about, and I want to talk about it in terms of the media. I'm sure most of you... We're paying attention to some of the Ben Carson stuff that was going on. For those of you who were doing something, you know, looking at more something more savory than our mainstream media, like porn or, you know, an episode of The Sopranos, uh, you know, I'll, I will I will bring you up uh, up to date on what's going on. All right, Ben Carson, black guy, suddenly leading the pack. So the media goes bats. They go absolutely out of their mind. And Ben Carson has. One of his big talking points is he has this very inspiring autobiography. He wrote a book called Gifted Hands, but he goes around and he gives speeches and all this stuff. And they start to, they've now started to investigate his autobiography. Now let me just say before I do this, I recently wrote a memoir that will come out in September, next September, so there's no, I'm not plugging it yet, but, uh, but, but, but get ready, get ready, you know, put your hand on the, on the sale button at, at, at Amazon. I wrote a memoir called the, the Great Good Thing about my conversion to Christianity, why over time I became convinced that Christianity was true. And I wrote it purposely from memory. I didn't go back and do a lot of research because when I was wrestling with this conversion, I was re reviewing my life and trying to see how I got here, and I did it from memory. You know, I didn't go and look things up. I just kind of remembered things. And so I purposely wrote it from memory. So you're writing the story of your life, and there are things that happen in all of our lives that are major turning points, major places where things just kind of change from one thing to another. And I remembered them, and I had them in my head, and I would write them, and every now and again, my wife would say to me, that's not how that happened. And we'd go back and forth, and sometimes she was right, and sometimes I was right, but we'd find, you know, we'd kind of find it, but the thing is, you forget. The mind is a story-making machine, and you turn it into the, the, the most comfortable story you can get. So CNN is parachuting reporters into Ben Carson's old Detroit neighborhood to find out the evil facts of his life. And one of the things that Carson talks about all the time is he talks about the fact that he was an angry, angry guy until he found Christ, okay? So he was angry, and he, he tried to hit his mother, and he stabbed the guy, uh, but the, the knife hit his belt buckle, uh, hit a guy with a, went, went after a guy with a locker lock and all this stuff. So, so CNN is sending reporters to find out, you know, whether or not this really happened. And one of them, what's her name, Maeve, 
I can't remember, Maeve Reston, is that right? Yeah, Maeve Reston. She starts tweeting while nobody remembers. This is 50 years ago, 50 years ago, a half century ago, some people's lifetimes, right? People would remember if somebody had tried to stab you with a, you know, a knife. I wouldn't remember if somebody tried to stab me with a knife and hit my belt buckle. I mean, that would be like, you know, that would be some, just an annoyance, basically. You know? I mean, the dramatic part of that story is the rage that he felt. So they go off and they find this, and they can't, they come back and they claim that they can't find any evidence of this. Now, the Wall Street Journal this morning had an editorial saying that this is just part of the deal for Republicans, that the media is biased, the media also is left-wing, so they try to divide us according to race and sex, and they were always trying to divide us and put us in these power groups and then play the power groups off each other for votes. And the Wall Street Journal said, just get used to it. Just get used to it. And I could not disagree more. I, I have a lot of respect for the Wall Street Journal editorial page, probably the best editorial page in the country. I just could not disagree with it more. I think we should crush these guys. I think we should run our chariots over and drag them around the arena several times. And then, you know, so like at the end of Ben-Hur, when the guy's lying there just bathed in blood, I think that I would like Candy Crowley. To, you know, I, I would carry Candy Crowley out of the journalistic professor profession on a rail if I could find a rail stout enough to carry Candy Crowley out of the journalistic profession. I mean, I just think these people betray their profession. This is Journalism is supposed to be what's called a meta-profession, right? Uh, being an artist is a meta-profession. You put things aside. You put your opinions aside. You put your uh, petty prejudices aside when you create a work of art. And some of your characters, when you create a novel, some of your characters disagree with you. Some things happen that you don't like. People's lives take on their own uh, energy, and you just let it go because it's a meta-profession. You're trying to tell the truth, and the truth is always bigger than anyone's point of view, anyone's point of view. The corruption of our press has put an end to that idea of the meta-profession, and they are just attack dogs, and I don't think Ben Carson should sit around for this at all for a minute, and he doesn't. Here, let, take a look. Bring up this interview that he did with CNN where uh, the, the reporter is saying, well, Maeve Reston went off and she investigated your life. And listen to Carson fight back, because he did a, a really good job. Um, she and another reporter went back and did talk to your elementary school friends, as well as Which your junior high school, school friends. friends? Uh, I believe it's all laid out, actually, on no, CNN.com. I, I saw your article. I didn't see any elementary school friends there. They, they say that bunch, they- This is a bunch of lies. This is what it is, it's a bunch of lies attempting, you know, to say that I'm lying about my history. I think it's pathetic. And, and basically well, what the media does is they try to get you distracted with all of this stuff so mm -hmm. that you don't talk about the things that are important mm -hmm. because we have so many important things. And, you know, I'm not proud of the fact that I had these rage episodes, but I am proud of the fact that I was able to, to get over them. Look, of course. Uh, <laughs> he, just, he just took her apart. I mean, there's, there's a journalist trying to take apart a political candidate, and the political candidate is taking apart the journalist when he says, when he says, which friends did you interview? And they're not even on the website. They don't even have the names. I mean, he's writing a memoir. It's okay to change people's names in a memoir and to even blend characters a little bit if you have to, uh, you know, to protect people's lives and protect people's privacy. They're reporters. They're reporters. You know, it's like the guy who said, well, we got the narrative right. We just got the facts wrong. I'm a novelist. My job is to get the narrative right and the facts wrong. You're a reporter. Your job is to get the facts right. And so they're lying. And he's just taking her apart like she's the subject of the interview. It's embarrassing. Worse than this. Worse than this and far more pathetic. 
this left-wing activist Kyle Cheney on Politico goes after Carson, and this one is this one is just an, it, truly incredible. Goes after Carson because Carson was the top ROTC guy in Detroit. Okay, he graduated the head of all of the city of Detroit. He was the top of his class at ROTC. He was invited to a dinner of some kind with General Westmoreland, and the people there said, look, if you want to get into West Point, it's a done deal. We'll get you into West Point. And so he, this, in, in Carson's mind, you know, he, he instead went on to Yale and then went on to medical school from Yale. But he always said to himself in the back of mind, well, I can always take this scholarship to West Point, as he put it in his mind. Now, that West Point doesn't actually give scholarships. I don't think they, you pay for West Point by serving in the military. That's how you pay for it. But, but that was in his mind. And so he'll, he'll say this, and he'll say it at speeches. You know, I didn't take the scholarship. So then, then Kyle Cheney goes out. Not only does he find out, discover, unearth this shattering fact that the, he, was never, he never actually applied to West Point, which he never said he did, by the way, in his memoir, but he then publishes a report, on Politico publishes a report that says the Carson campaign admits it fabricated this story completely untrue, completely untrue. They had to dial it back, they had to rewrite it, but they still <laughs> rewrote it as if it were a scoop. So get, let's get this right, okay? The, our mainstream media has exposed the fact that a candidate may not have ever tried to stab somebody and went to Yale instead of going to West Point. I mean, that's, that's what we've learned about Ben Carson. If, if, if even what they're saying is true, which it doesn't seem to be true, I mean, the dishonesty and the bias, it, it's... It, it, it has reached a level of absurdity, and for the Wall Street Journal to say we just have to take this is ridiculous. I'm saying I, I really do think we should, you know, grind these guys to dust beneath our chariot wheels because this it's it's intolerable. It's just intolerable that our political system should have one party and then one party and the press. That's that's ridiculous. So I don't even have to say this, but it's, it's worth saying anyway. Obviously, Obama. Well, first of all, Hillary, let's think about Hillary for a minute. She goes up before the Benghazi committee and lies outright and is proven to lie. And all we heard is, wow, what a, what a great performance she gave before Benghazi committee. That was a great week for Hillary Clinton. She, she lied good. She lied so good, she should be president. That's one of the, that's one of the best lies I've ever heard. You know, that was, I mean, it was, it, was, it, was, it was kind of postmodern. They didn't even say it was true. They said it was a lie, but it was great. She did it with such a you know, firm face. It was a witch hunt, and she lied her way through it, and good for her. So that's, that's the one thing. And then, of course, there's Obama. I, I wrote an article when Obama was running the first time, the, in the first uh, Obama-McCain election. I wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal that the Wall Street Journal turned down. Uh, and I was publishing pretty regularly with the journal then, and I sent them a piece that just said, you know, there's something weird about the way this guy lies. I mean, we all accept that politicians lie and, you know, fudge their background and all this stuff. But this guy lies like a kid when you catch him with his hand in the cookie jar and you say to him, are you stealing a cookie? And he goes, no. No, you know, and he just lies like automatically, easily caught out lies. But what happens when he gets caught out in his lie? Remember, he lied about Jeremiah Wright. He said, "I never heard, I never heard him say any of those things." Twenty years of Sundays, he sat in church with Jeremiah Wright, but he never heard any of his black theology. Never heard any of his uh, goddamn America stuff. He gave that speech, that uh, speech on race, that was. Its only purpose was to divert attention from this lie, from this kind of pinched, mean version of pseudo-Christianity that this guy was, that Obama was practicing for 20 years. That was his only reason. And David Brooks, the pseudo-conservative at the New York Times, says this speech is a symphony. 
It's a symphony. The speech was, it was a, a symphony. It's a symphony of lies. They, they, they didn't have to be true, but they sounded so good. They sounded great. So, I mean, this is something Obama does. Remember, he lied about uh, his mother couldn't get health insurance when he was peddling Obamacare. His mother couldn't get health insurance. And, of course, there was the really powerful one about uh, Bill Ayers, this terrorist, anti-American terrorist, and let's get this straight. Let me just make sure I have this absolutely right, all right? This is Ayers participated in the, as, a, as a member of the Weather Underground in the bombings of New York City Police Department headquarters in 1970, the United States Capitol Building in 71, and the Pentagon in 72. His friends blew themselves up building a pipe bomb in Greenwich Village. I remember the pictures of Dustin Hoffman, who lived in the, in the brownstone next door, carrying his paintings out as the, as the building burned down. They, and they were killed. There was nobody killed in these other things. He was never convicted because of prosecutorial mis misconduct, but he never repented. So Obama's defense that he was only seven or eight years old when these bombings took place is a non-starter, because if the guy never repented, he's still the same guy. You're still hanging out with this anti-American terrorist. So remember, Obama says, just a guy in the neighborhood. He was just a guy in the neighborhood. I went to one meeting with him or something like this. And CNN, to their credit, this is on the Anderson Cooper show, um, Drew, what's his name? Drew Griffin, exposed the fact that this is a lie. So let's just look at that, the, the exposing part. Barack Obama confirmed during a primary debate that he knew heirs and, when pressed, said they served on a charitable foundation board together. And Obama condemned heirs' support of violence. But the relationship between Obama and heirs went much deeper, ran much longer, and was much more political than Obama said. Now, by the way, just to give him credit, uh, John Nolte is the guy who dug this up and put it on the Breitbart sites, a uh, great find by Nolte. Every, every fact in this report, every single one, is interspersed with an Obama spokesman making excuses for Obama. That's the first thing. So it's a very soft report. Griffin is allowed to play the tough guy reporter, but every single thing he says is broken by a long, long bite of... The, uh, of an Obama spokeswoman talking for Obama and McCain, and no, and no one from his campaign is there. And when Griffin is asked about it, he says, I didn't, I didn't interview anyone in McCain's campaign. Now listen to Anderson Cooper do what psych, psych, psychologists call this reframing. When you reframe a, a story that one person looks at as bad, they kind of tell it again in a, in a more positive light. Listen to Anderson Cooper. In the same report, as this report ends, he interviews Drew Griffin. Listen to the way he reframes the story. Bottom line is, if Obama and Ayers work together with others to, to, I guess, improve schools, what exactly is the McCain-Palin camp saying is wrong with, with this relationship or this working relationship or however you want to characterize well, it? Well, Anderson, I haven't contacted McCain campaign on this issue. What they're saying on the stump is the same thing that Hillary Clinton brought up during the primary campaign. It's the issue of trust. You know, by raising this issue of Bill Ayers and whether or not Barack Obama was hanging around with him, palling around with him, just working with him, Bill Ayers in the 60s had a very, very different view of the United States that many Americans did. A lot of Americans were against the Vietnam War, but not a lot of Americans formed a group and started bombing things uh, because of it. Now, they're trying to say that that raises judgment issues on Barack Obama, which has been the tag other campaigns, now McCain's, have been trying to peg on him ever since he started running for president. But Barack Obama has publicly stated he does not agree with this guy, correct? Well, he has said that he does, uh, uh, I, I forget his exact words, but he certainly uh, deplores the, the, the violence in the past. Right. I, I haven't been able to ask him directly about the relationship he has or had uh, with, uh, with Bill Ayers. All right, Drew Griffin, thanks very much.
That's, I mean, that's an amazing interview. You know, when, they, when he and Bill were getting together to help improve schools, you know, what, what's the problem here? Well, it, it's kind of a trust issue. As, as Sarah Palin said, he's palling around with a terrorist and wants to be president of the United... You remember, this is the United States that Bill Ayers was bombing, you know, that's... It, that, that, that didn't cause them to go crazy, but it causes them to go crazy that they can't find the guy that Ben Carson tried to stab but didn't. You know, that's, that's what's driving them crazy. It doesn't matter that he, this guy, you know, they, they're trying to prove basically that he's like, that Ben Carson is a white guy escaped from prison wearing a full-body black neurosurgeon suit. Until they, until they prove that, I don't really care what else they prove. The guy is what he seems to be. You know, he is what he seems to be. And if, he, if he's gilded the lily on his memoir, I have no idea whether he did or not, or if he's just missed remembered things, does that really change his qualifications to be president? It's, it's insane. It's insane. Two kinds of dishonesty. This is what I want to talk about. There are two kinds of dishonesty. Simple dishonesty and intellectual dishonesty. These are my phrases that I'm making it up. We all practice simple dishonesty at times. We all tell lies. We all say we're going to do stuff and don't show up. We all fail when we mean to succeed. We give our word and it doesn't pan out. Simple dishonesty is something we do. Intellectual dishonesty is a different thing. Intellectual dishonesty is a false worldview held together by purposely excluding facts and keeping your vision narrow. Now, this is a universal human trait. We, we do it with death. We all do it with death. You know, we all live every day as if we're never going to die. If you live, the way intellectual dishonesty works, because it's true in this narrow field of vision, everything goes great until everything goes terribly. Okay, it's like people who go back, I think it was Ernest Hemingway said, when people go bankrupt, first they go bankrupt slowly, then they go bankrupt very fast. That's what happens with intellectual dishonesty. If you really believe you're not going to die, if you believe it's all right, for instance, to smoke cigarettes, everything's going to go great. Every day you're going to feel fine. Every day you're going to enjoy your cigarette. And then one day it's a disaster and you're sitting there begging your doctor to help you live to see your daughter's wedding. You know, that's, that's the way intellectual dishonesty works. And we all have that kind of intellectual dishonesty. But if you look at your life, Personally, if there are things in your life that repeatedly go wrong, uh, your husband, you keep getting involved with abusive men, you keep getting involved with crazy women, uh, you keep losing your job, if you examine your life, you will find a kind of intellectual dishonesty. And you can change it. You can actually change it. I mean, the woman who says, oh, yeah, he's really sorry he hit me this time for the fifth time and he won't do it again, that's intellectual dishonesty. That is keeping a narrow focus on the fact that he cried and he apologized and he brought you flowers you're not seeing the bigger picture that this has been going on and it's a pattern in your life. But there are bigger forms of intellectual dishonesty. Just to give a, a, an example, pacifism is a form of intellectual dishonesty. Someone who says, I will never fight. Anyone who is, says he will never fight and is alive is being kept alive by people who fight. He is surrounded by guns. He is surrounded by soldiers. He is surrounded by police. And whether he calls them or not, his, he is still here because those usually men with guns are patrolling the mean streets and keeping, even, even if he lives in a country that's peaceful, it's because the borders are patrolled by these guys. Pacifism is intellectually dishonest. At times, people do things like Martin Luther King, Gandhi did things where they would have peaceful protests because they were depending upon the fact that America and with Gandhi, Britain, were countries with high levels of conscience and goodwill who could be shamed by the sight of people being brutalized into giving Gandhi and Martin Luther King the things they wanted, some of which were quite 
uh, worthy of, of being gotten. But when they spoke sometimes, when you heard Martin Luther King say the arc of the universe bends toward justice, uh, I remember the end of the movie Gandhi. The end of the movie Gandhi really drove me crazy. They put on, over his funeral, they put up the words, uh, when I despair, this is a Gandhi quote, I remember that all through history, the way of truth and love has always won. There have been tyrants and murderers, and for a time they can seem invincible, but in the end they always fall, always. That's intellectual dishonesty. That, you know, this is from Gandhi, a man who recommended that the Jews put up passive resistance during World War II and who opposed World War II. The way of truth and love doesn't always win. And if it wins, it doesn't always win in your lifetime. And when you're watching your family being wiped out or uh, entire villages, entire countries, entire races being wiped out, to sit around and say, well, eventually, truth and love will always win, so I can just sit here and smoke a long cigar, that is intellectual dishonesty. To say that all tyrants fall is what I'm talking about, narrow vision. That's true until you realize, you open up your vision, you realize everybody falls, everybody dies. All governments fall. Good governments fall, bad governments fall. In this moment, because life is not eternal, because the, each person who dies is eternally worthwhile, each person who dies is infinitely worthwhile, you're responsible for that guy. You're responsible for that guy. When they cart him away to prison or to the death camps, you can't sit back and say, well, the arc of the universe bends towards justice. Everybody has intellectual dishonesty. The left has now become font of intellectual dishonesty. And in the case of Ben Carson, it's the dishonesty of racial virtue. It's the dishonesty that their way is the virtuous way to approach race and any other way is evil. And therefore, if a black man stands up and says, no, you've got it wrong, he has, has to be silenced. I mean, listen to this from a, an article by Larry Elder. Under Obama, Larry Elder is the terrific black radio guy, he calls himself the sage of South Central. Uh, under Obama, the black poverty rate is up. Minority households' median income has fallen far more than white. Median net wealth among minorities has plummeted. The percentage of blacks out of the workforce is now the lowest ever. Home ownership among minorities has fallen. Obama has been, and leftism has been, a disaster uh, for black people. Look at the cities. Look at the cities that the left runs. Um, and they're just destroyed. And so Ben Carson is threatening, threatening the intellectual dishon dishonesty of racial virtue on the left. And that's why he has to be destroyed. And the, the Muslims, acting on their own philosophy, the Islamists, let's call them, acting on their own philosophy, not because of anything we do, acting out of their own beliefs that they hold, that their, their tradition, are destroying the intellectual dishonesty of multiculturalism and relativism, the idea that all cultures are the same and there is no good and evil. As long as that goes on, we don't know what our values are, we don't know who the enemies are, we don't know who our heroes should be, and we don't know what James Bond really is doing out there uh, when he fights Spectre. We don't know who Spectre is, uh, and we should really remind ourselves. All right, stuff I like. And on the same theme, intellectual dishonesty, for, for many of us who are both Christians and artists, uh, when we look at Christian art, we see intellectual dishonesty. Everything, I, 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 always, call, I always call Christian stories, you know, I, I lost my bunny, but Jesus brought it back again, you know. That, that all you have to do is embrace Jesus and everything goes great. When in fact, the thing that drew me to Christianity, the thing that drew me to Christ himself was the tragic nature. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is a religion about a God 
abandoned by God. I mean, that, that is, I guess that's the very end all and be all of all tragedy. And so when I look at stories that have a religious viewpoint, I want something a lot darker uh, and more interesting and more with more gray areas. Here is a minor thriller that I believe is a minor classic. I think it was overlooked. Uh, one guy, I think Roger Ebert uh, pegged it, but it's usually kind of just sloughed off. It's called Frailty. Has anybody seen Frailty? Very dark, what's that? I think I yeah, very dark, um, kind of classically told. It's really, it's about this FBI agent who's looking for a serial killer one dark and stormy night. A guy wanders in and it's Matthew McConaughey. Can we bring up, just, we have just one brief scene. Matthew McConaughey says he knows who the, who the killer is. So, what can I do for you, Mr. Meeks. Name's Fenton Meeks. Listen, this may sound a little bit crazy, but I know who the God's Hand Killer is. All right, I'll buy. Who? Well, you hadn't even heard me out yet, and already you doubt me. Why is that? Because <laughs> in a case like this, nobody just walks into the office and tells you who the killer is. It just doesn't happen that way. Sometimes truth defies reason, Agent Dole. <laughs> Sometimes. Sometimes truth defies reason, and that's part of the uh, story. Bill Paxton, the actor from uh, Big Love, uh, directed this, and he is also in it. It gives a sensational performance. Um, it's really good stuff, very dark and grim, so you, know, you want to have a, a strong stomach for it. Uh, not too bloody, but, but grim. Uh, frailty. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. It's good to be back, and we will be back again tomorrow, Tuesday. I'll see you then.